1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Ore Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: The Atlantic meridional overturning circulation is the most important ocean current that almost no one has heard of. If it were to stop, disastrous effects would follow on both sides of the Atlantic. And, bad news, it looks as if that day might be coming.
2: And there's a certain amount of etiquette that every airline passenger should follow. Not that you'd know it sometimes. But for business travellers, the suggested decorum is a little more restrictive still. After all, you might find the boss three rows back. First up, though...
3: So, I was recently in Hazard, which is a town in eastern Kentucky in the Appalachian Mountains.
2: Daniel Knowles is The Economist's American Midwest correspondent.
3: It's a place that used to be home to a lot of America's coal industry. In fact, there's still some there. But it's also a place where the opiate crisis has been entrenched for a very long time.
4: A man hurts his back, if he is not back to work, they will replace him. I could not have supported my family on the disability.
3: 20, 30 years ago, doctors were really prescribing opiates to coal miners to manage chronic pain from working down a mine.
5: Since I've been on this new pain medication, I have not missed one day of work.
0: Now I can enjoy every day that I live.
5: I have found life again, and I'm so grateful.
3: Now it's become a lot worse.
0: For many years, the annual number of Kentuckians that die from drug overdoses have steadily climbed.
3: Opioids are now the biggest drug epidemic in American history. I walked into a place there called the Rebound Recovery Center, which is a drugs treatment clinic, and they have this whiteboard on the wall, and the population of the Hazard is only about 5,000, but on the whiteboard, they list everybody who's died, and there are at least 20 names. And the problem now is that They're not on prescription opiates anymore, they're not even on heroin, but there's a lot of methamphetamines around, and people are dying because it's often laced with fentanyl.
1: Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. So let's launch a major surge to stop fentanyl production in the sale and trafficking pills and powder at the
0: border.
3: The reason I went to Hazard is that it's one of these towns in America that has among the highest mortality rates of anywhere in the country. It's not just opiates, actually. People die of heart attacks. They die in car crashes. There's a lot of gun violence. The average life expectancy in 2019, even before the coronavirus hit, was just 69 years old, which is more than a decade less than across America. When you look at America internationally, it's is a country where people are dying young a lot more. It seems to be a place that just tolerates a much higher levels of early death than lots of other countries in the rich world.
2: And just how badly does it compare?
3: So if you look at the data for 18 other countries... In the 1980s, America was in the middle on life expectancy. By 2018, it had fallen well into last place. That was before the pandemic, which is worse than things still. There are some estimates that say Americans may now live, on average, less than people in China. Americans now live a couple of years less than even people in Portugal. A country that Americans used to live seven or eight years longer than 50 years ago, which is the second worst country of those 18 in that study I mentioned. So America has fallen behind very dramatically and it now really stands out as a place of very high mortality. And there are many ways in which Americans have long been less healthy than other countries, high rates of obesity, high rates of heart disease. But one of the things that's really dragging America down that has this outsized effect on life expectancy estimates is Deaths at very early young ages, particularly violence deaths, these are really exceptionally high in America.
2: What sorts of things are killing all these young people so
3: violently? Well, it's almost anything you can think of. There's very high murder rates, which are five or six times higher than most European countries, far higher if you look specifically at guns, so are road deaths, which are three or four times higher. And almost any kind of death you look at, whether it's drowning, whether it's dying in a fire, whether it's dying in a workplace accident, Americans died at higher rates. And it does add up. But it's not evenly spread. Some parts of America have been hit much harder than others. Like where? If you look at this band that runs across, beginning in the Appalachian Mountains, where it was in Kentucky, spreading down southwest from there to Texas, typically around the old industrial towns, mining towns, but right down into the south, you have... Life expectancy in many places is lower than it was in 1980. And often these are parts of America that are very poor. There's high levels of inequalities, lots of deprivation, but they're not that poor by international standards. So poverty only partly explains it.
2: So if it's not just poverty, what does explain the widening gap between America and Europe?
3: The big thing that seems to be the case is that America has not improved in terms of protecting people's lives at a kind of government level in the way that other countries have. So if you look at car crashes, for example, America doesn't have that many more car crashes now than it did 30 years ago. But 30 years ago, if you looked at French people, for example, they died at a rate that was actually higher in car crashes than Americans, per mile driven roughly double. Now Americans are more than twice as likely per mile to die in car crashes as the French and far more likely overall because they also drive more. What has happened is that European roads have got a lot safer. They put in roundabouts, speed cameras, pedestrian barriers, all these sorts of things that make it much harder to crash. And what's happened in America is that the roads have got wider and the cars bigger and heavier and more likely to kill somebody if they hit them. And you can see lots of examples like that. Gun ownership, in a lot of countries, it has tightened up. It's been made harder to get a gun. In Europe, in America, it's generally got easier. So in lots of ways, Europe and other countries have improved and America has been sort of stuck. It hasn't been able to make those same improvements and so it's fallen behind.
2: And can America adopt some of those same fixes that have worked in Europe?
3: It certainly can, but I think it hasn't because there's very strong belief in personal responsibility, that it's your job as an individual to not make these poor decisions and to protect yourself rather than the role of government. One thing I see often here at home in Chicago, but also in Kentucky, is that a lot of people riding motorbikes don't wear helmets, which is sort of thing that, you know, is not really allowed or legal anywhere else in the rich world. Yeah. A lot of car crash deaths involve people who weren't wearing seatbelts. And even when it comes to things like opiates, a lot of people think that the responsibility of an individual just not to take drugs. And so there's this strong belief that it's up to you to protect yourself. And so the practical measures that reduce the risk that people are taking in their day-to-day lives that are being implemented elsewhere in the world and in some parts of America are being avoided here. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's got to this appalling level of mortality.
2: So it sounds like some people have a bit more of a live free and die attitude.
3: There's something to that, but something that's interesting about this is it's very concentrated. Death rates have risen fastest in particularly rural areas, generally places that voted republican that have voted for donald trump recently and if you listen to donald trump you listen to republicans in general they do talk about the rates of american carnage it may be that there's an element of individualism driving this to some extent but i think nobody wants it there is also a desire for government to protect people from death they're just not going about it the right way
2: and so daniel in your view what will it take to stop americans dying so
3: young Well, I think probably what it needs is A, for people to recognise the problem and B, to stop looking for outside enemies. If you look at the fentanyl crisis, there's been a huge focus from the right in particular on the Mexican cartels and outside enemies bringing this in and not very much on stuff like treatment, on testing, on harm reduction policies even when it comes to driving safety or guns there's this very strong belief in solutions that are tackle the bad guys and what it will actually take to begin reducing some of these death rates is stuff that might inconvenience people a bit but it's kind of recognizing that people make mistakes and finding ways to help them not make those mistakes rather than just kind of trying to punish away the problem. There are hints that that can happen. For example, last year, a bit of bipartisan gun control legislation, the first time in years there has been that a lot of states are beginning to legalise fentanyl testing strips. So there's a growing recognition that changes need to happen to protect people. But for tens of thousands of Americans who are dying unnecessarily every year at the moment, it can't come soon enough.
2: Daniel, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Always a pleasure to join. Thank you for having me.
0: Staying with extreme weather and brutally high temperatures are making
4: their way across the globe.
3: If anybody's still out here, it's time to go. If
2: anybody's still out here, it's time
1: to go. Heat waves in Europe, rampant fires in Hawaii, floods and droughts in China. All these extremes have been made more likely and will get more likely still because of climate change. For some parts of the Earth's wildly complicated natural systems, changes in weather and temperatures and rainfall will come gradually. Other parts are more temperamental, and after certain stages can experience big changes in sudden ways, the thresholds that are called tipping points. The accelerated melting of Greenland's ice sheet could be one. Its wholesale collapse could raise sea levels by up to seven meters. The dieback of the Amazon rainforest, making it the Amazon savanna,
0: is another. You could say another tipping point is AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, but that would not be to do it full justice. AMOC is really the er er-tipping point. It's the tipping point that people understood as a tipping point more thoroughly and earlier on than all the other ones they talk about. Oliver Morton
1: is The Economist's Briefings Editor.
0: It's important because it's one of the biggest movers of heat from the equator and indeed from the Southern Hemisphere up to the north. And that heat transfer is really, really important to how the climate works, not just in the Atlantic, but considerably more broadly. So it's sort of a water conveyor belt, what you're describing. I mean, how how does it work? Yeah, a conveyor belt is a very good image because... Unlike most ocean currents, which are pushed along by winds, this one is pulled along basically by itself. So cold, salty water in the North Atlantic sinks, and that pulls up warm, less salty water from the tropics. And that conveyor belt brings heat up. The heat sort of like falls off the belt, as it were, up at the north, when the belt itself goes down into the abyss and circles back round to the south. And this is why AMOC is so important, because the whole system grinds to a halt if you don't have that sinking, salty water.
1: And so the concern here is that there's a a tipping point with the circulating current that we're reaching. Is that right?
0: Yes. The worry about a tipping point would be that models show that global warming will freshen the North Atlantic, and that might go so far as to shut down the conveyor altogether mathematically this is what's called a bistable system it has two different ways that it can be in a given set of conditions and if you move it from one way it can be to the other way it can be you're not going to get it back up just by changing things back a little bit if the system's got a sort of like memory and it says i've been turned off i'm off for a good reason i'm massively anthropomorphizing this ocean current at the moment but that's kind of the tipping point idea right that it's not just that you push it at gradually and it gradually changes you push it gradually and it resists a bit and it goes a bit and then suddenly bang somewhere else. And so
1: what happens when that push, that click, that snap of the fingers happens?
0: Well, one thing fairly locally is that in the North Atlantic and particularly in Northern Europe, things get a bit colder and they also get drier because when the conveyor belt is running, there's a lot of evaporation as the water cools down. When it's not running, you get dry, cold weather in Continental Europe and in Britain and the drying out is really quite impressive. So a world in which the conveyor stopped and yet at the same time global warming continued would be a world in which, for instance, a lot of British farms would have to become irrigated rather than being fed by rainfall. Um Big impact, though, is with something called the Intertropical Convergence Zone, which is basically where the Northern Hemisphere's weather and the Southern Hemisphere's weather meet. And that zone will move if you change the way that heat is flowing up to the north. And those movements will have effects in Central America, where models suggest incredibly severe droughts. It will change rainfall for the worse in the Sahel part of Africa, which is already obviously a very destabilised Part of the world. It would have effects on the Indian and East Asian monsoons as well. The full details of this, it's kind of hard to say, but it would be a really stonking change to the way the climate works. And any such change is always going to be disturbing because people are adapted to the way the climate works now. And if you suddenly change it into something else, you might get even nastier results than the gradual pushing towards somewhere else that humankind has already sort of like embarked on. And so
1: the suggestion here is that the way the climate is going the more of the pushing of the switch that we're doing.
0: Yeah, that's right. And climate models of the sort that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, takes into account all show that the AMOC that the overturning circulation will slow down as the world warms up over the next century. However, the IPCC used to say it was very unlikely that it would stop in the coming century. Now it says it's Pretty likely it'll go on, but it's no longer being anything as categorical. And so people are very interested in finding new ways of looking at the issue that might actually tell you, is this thing going to or even in the early stages of shutting down or not? And so what is the latest on that question? Well, a paper came out recently by two researchers at the University of Copenhagen, Peter Ditlevson and Suzanne Ditlevson. That paper looks at particular sea surface temperatures over a part of the North Atlantic that they take to be a sort of like fingerprint of how's the overturning circulation doing. And... There's a mathematical theory of tipping points that says that as you get close to something, these sort of statistical fingerprints will change in very particular ways. And the Ditlevsons reckon that the thing that they're treating as a fingerprint is indeed showing this statistical sort of like stiffening and slowing down in the data that you would expect if the tipping point was coming close. And so they say that the tipping point is really quite likely this century. The median time that they would expect would be about 2060, but it could be decades earlier. Now, that's very far from a firm prediction. There are a lot of suppositions about how the world works and how the water works that go into that. But it does add to a case being made by some very respected researchers into this circulation that it really may not be as stable as people thought 10 years ago. So the obvious thing to say now is more research is needed, but I'm not really sure to what extent it is. Yes, it would be great to have early warning, but you know, if someone says that it's likely 50% chance in the next 20 years, is that really going to change the way that people act on global warming? It might do, but everyone knows the basics of how this situation works, and more research will definitely help get a better sense of this particular tipping point, I would advocate more research on the other tipping points too. However, don't think that just knowing how this tipping point works a bit better is going to mean that you're going to sleep better at night because it's not, or at least it shouldn't.
1: Oliver, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure
0: to be here as ever, Jason.
4: The COVID-19 pandemic has, thanks to Zoom, killed off many work trips. But not all of them. Some in-person meetings are coming back. And so is business flying. Fini Papagiorgiou writes about business for The Economist. And occasionally
2: writes Bartleby, our column on the world of work.
4: As a sophisticated traveller, you probably know the drill by heart. But it's trickier than you might think. Many rules of airplane decorum apply to all travel. As a business traveler, though, you need to pay special attention to your presentation and behavior during the flight. Some of the rules are obvious. You do not kick the seat in front of you if the passenger in the front row is reclining too far backwards. You do not hog both armrests, and you do not show up in pyjama bottoms. Alcohol is an obvious one. 30,000 feet above ground, the effects of alcohol are more pronounced. So if you are one of these people who feels a bit no-shoes during takeoff, then you definitely should pass on the vodka and stick to water. It is usually the case that unruly passengers are the boozing passengers. Cabin crew are trained to be courteous and polite at all times, and they should be matched in tone. Coach class is the trickiest. There is not enough room. We know that humans do not fare well in confined spaces, so this is where most friction occurs. Overhead bins are meant to be shared, and of course, you have no control who sits next to you.
3: Oh, well, I've never flown up here before and I just think it's so pretty up in the sky. Do you fly very much? I really so,
4: if you find yourself next to Chatty Cathy, just... your next-seat neighbour who will not stop talking, it is okay to say excuse me, smile and put on your headphones to end all conversations.
5: I'm keep on talking anyway, you know?
4: Other obvious rules are that you should not put your feet on tray tables. And you cannot do gali yoga, which is when you go and stretch where the flight attenders are working. No man-spreading, do not do your stretches. Things are much better at business class. It is easier for everyone. There's more space, there's more privacy, and there's less friction as a consequence. But even so, no one wants to hear to your conversation while you're boarding. No one cares if you're a big shot. (laughs) Do not wear heavy perfume. It affects everyone. A sense of decorum is essential at all times when you're flying for work. So even though your boss is not on the plane or your colleagues, still it is important to keep appearances, be respectful at all times.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some news for you if you're a subscriber. The Economist app now has a dedicated tab for this show and for all our podcasts. It's the easiest way to tune in every single day.
1: And if you're not a subscriber,
2: what are you waiting for?
1: Check out the special offer we have at the moment, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
4: We all need
2: to write for work. Want to improve? Bolster your skills with Economist Education's six-week online course. You'll explore the craft of writing and learn from The Economist editors how to engage and persuade, whether it's vibrant memos, pithy social media posts, or storytelling with data. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code WRITING. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash businesswriting.